0: The, the topic is the Filioque, and the reason why we bring it up here because is cause we've been doing this history of these councils, and, and we're kind of up to what the Orthodox Church could consider as an ecumenical council. We don't we don't number it among the seven because it's not considered the same; it's not accepted by the West. But uh, but for our purposes, it's. We would, we would think of it as an ecumenical council and the, because the Pope uh, at the time had the representatives there and so it was approved uh, by the whole church. It's, it was a council condemning the addition of the filioque into the creed. Okay, so this, under the patriarch Potius.: yes. yes. That council uh, accepted in the West
1: until
2: the like, Swiss? Yes. Uh, exactly.
0: Yeah, it was accepted in the West, but now the, you know, the modern Roman Catholic Church uh, does not accept it. So this is only uh, dealing with the with the addition to the creed, not with the doctrine. But it's a kind of major turning point because the acceptance of our, our acceptance of this council means that we reject the addition of the filioque in the creed, and therefore uh, ultimately this was one of the causes that led to the schism with the Western. Uh, church, churches, because of course the Protestants also kept the filioque, but uh, but particularly the schism with the modern Roman Catholic Church. But it, it, it in itself, it didn't cause the schism, but it was one of the, the leading factors. Now, to kind of understand this, we're going to back up a little bit. Where did the filioque come from? And I guess what is the filioque is a is a Latin word. Which means uh, the kind of the Son also sort of uh, kind of uh, literally, but uh, we try to usually end the Son. So uh, in the Scripture, Christ talks about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father, and so in the Orthodox uh, theology of the Trinity, the Father is the source, the person of the Father is the source of the Trinity, and from Him is begotten the Son, and The Holy Spirit proceeds from Him. Now, this uh, phrase refers specifically to an addition made to the Nicene Creed, where in the Creed we say, and we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And in in the West, in the modern West, we have the term uh, in Latin filioque there, which means we believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. How they say it. In this way, it's a, uh, reflecting a theology which is different from our theology. And so the, the, uh, problem that we're going to speak about is, not, is two things. One, how did it happen that in the West they ended up with a, a, a change in the creed? That's the first problem. The second is what, how did the, how did the understanding of the Trinity change? And that's uh, where we'll start, because that happened first in uh, about 400 A.D. Around 400 A.D. we have uh, uh, Bishop Augustine of of North Africa, who was an educated uh, convert from Manichaeism who became an Orthodox bishop and was a brilliant uh, person, but who wrote a lot of kind of very original and I guess somewhat idiosyncratic books on theology that became very influential in the West. Uh, He wrote in Latin. And one of the books that he wrote uh, is On the Trinity which was an attempt to defend uh, the doctrine of the Trinity based on philosophical grounds. The book became especially important because the Barbarian tribes uh, that, it, that took over the Western Roman Empire around the time that, uh, even at the end of Augustine's life, the Vandals were coming, uh, Vandal tribe was coming into North Africa, uh, were Aryans. So the major uh, theological challenge to Western uh, Christianity between uh 400s and 500s was was Arianism. Therefore uh, Augustine's book became very influential and important because it offered philosophical defenses of the unity of the Trinity versus the Arian Arian uh, rejection of the divinity of the Son. Because in the Arianism only the Father is is God and the Son and Spirit are seen as uh Holy seen as separate. So this gave a lot of uh, prestige and importance to Augustine's work. The main, the key idea of, of his book is that that the Trinity, that God, is essentially uh, the divine essence. Uh, identification of God with the essence. And that kind of showing that, that the uh, the three persons are just sort of relative Relationships within that essence. So this was very good. If you want to argue, if you want to argue that God is the divine essence, well, that that includes all three. Well, that's a good way of answering uh, the Arians who want to separate the Son and the Spirit from the Father. As part of that argument, uh, Augustine does kind of argue that that this unity means that there's a sort of uh, uh, Inseparability or uh, lack of uh, distinction between the persons, which leads him to say that if, the, so as the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, he must also be proceeding from the Son. So he uh, supposes the filioque, uh, so in a way we can say he creates the doctrine of the filioque as, in both senses, uh, He comes up with the idea that that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son because he wants to show that the Father and Son are equal, but he also is really saying that that the Father and Son are really the Father, the Holy Spirit and the Son are really coming not from the Father, but ultimately that all the persons come from the essence. And this will be, uh, when we look at the development of the filioque doctrine in the Middle Ages, in, the, in the, what becomes the Roman Catholic Church, <clears throat> we'll see that this actually is the, is the theology that lies behind it. Um, it's in the inseparability of the persons and ultimately that everything that's happening in the Trinity is coming out of the divine essence, not out of the persons themselves. So it's a theology which is sort of essence-centric. Uh, whereas uh, orthodox theology, we could say, is, is person-centric. The uh, Son and the Spirit are seen as coming out of the person of the Father. Uh, as I said before, the, the term homoousios, which is kind of the key term, really is a comparative term, that the Son and the Spirit are of the same essence as the Father. So we describe the Trinity in its relationship as the relationship between the Son and the Father and the relationship between the Spirit and the Father. The the Augustinian view of the Trinity is really a a philosophical and abstract view. What is God? God is this essence here. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are kind of part of that, coming out of that essence, so connected to it. So that's what gives them its unity, is that really God is centered in the essence. Now, this theology develops... As the West is falling under the Germans, it's, it, it's in a world that's become somewhat cut off from Greek theology, and it's a world that's dealing with this terrible problem of Aryan domination. When, uh, in a way, that the, the, uh, the theolo- theology, theological tradition that emerges in the West in the Middle Ages is a very heavily Augustinian tradition, and it's a tradition of which the Greek East is pretty much unaware, because they they know about Augustine, but they don't know they really don't know much about him, and so uh, they're really caught by surprise by, at when at medieval Latin theology. Now, the the council, the uh, excuse me, the, the words Philotheopate in the Creed come about because of a church council that takes place in Spain. Uh, ultimately, well, the Visigoths who had taken over Spain were Aryans. But eventually, the Visigoths are converted to Orthodoxy. In 587, there's a council in uh, Toledo in which they uh, convert from Arianism to Orthodoxy. But when that happens, <coughs> somehow, which we're not really sure how, the Nicene Creed, which they had adopted in Toledo, is not our Nicene Creed. Well, it is, but it has the Filioque in it. And we don't really know how that happened, but it appears that the reason was as in an effort to, uh, to overcome Arianism. They added this phrase coming from Augustinian theology as a sort of perhaps trying to make a stronger statement against the Arians. Now, the matter would have just stopped there with Spain having a peculiar, uh, creed, and then Spain, of course, was taken over by the Muslims later, uh, and that would have been the end of it, perhaps, but we had talked last time about the, uh, the effect of the, uh, iconoclast controversy in, uh, driving, uh, the popes from kind of the protection of the Byzantine Empire to an alliance with the, uh, alliance with the Franks.
1: Yes? yes. Can you comment, uh, on the, on the Athanasian creed that
2: was floating around? Yeah, around it's
0: actually, it's not by Athanasius, it's an Augustinian. That may have had some, uh, impact on why this was adopted, and they may, they may have, thought like oh well you know it must maybe it was taken out by the arians or something you know because it's somehow the assumption of the west is always that that is the creed and that now the greeks shockingly have taken the filioque way out for some reason they don't uh, even seem conscious of the fact that they've made a change at least in the places that have it i mean uh, in rome they were aware that the creed was the way we have it but another thing happened which was that uh, okay so the the popes are, uh, kind of encourage the expansion of Frankish power, ultimately uh, crowning Charlemagne as uh, emperor in 800. But, uh, well, not about 800, uh, Charlemagne as emperor. But even before that, the uh, Frankish kingdom is becoming more important. And there was a uh, marriage alliance uh, set up between... Uh, Charlemagne's daughter and the Irene, Empress Irene's son, which, uh, for some reason the Empress and her son decided to break that engagement, and, uh, which was perhaps not a wise thing to do because it uh, annoyed Charlemagne, and he, uh, began to sort of see himself as a rival to the Byzantine Emperor, and, and he wanted to discredit the, Byz- the Byzantine Empire. This was right at the time, so you would think now, you know, they've had all this like, first wave of iconoclasm has gone by, Irene is now uh, reinstating orthodoxy with the Seventh Ecumenical Council and everybody should just be uh, rejoicing that this is happening. But when the uh, the Council uh, is brought over to the West, uh, Charlemagne's response is to have his uh, court theologians, you know, look it over to find everything that's possibly wrong with it that can prove that the Byzantines are really heretics. And so they write a very large book, uh, what we call the, the Caroline Books, critiquing our Senate Council and, and finding that it was really all full of heresies. And one of the heresies was that uh, the Patriarch Tarasius had said uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, and the theologians that Charlemagne was using, based on you know having studied Augustine, said, "Well, what's this through the Son? Everybody knows the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and so this is a, some kind of heresy that Tarasius, uh, the patriarch of Constantinople, is introducing here. So this, uh, the desire to prove the Orthodox Church of the East as heretical, led." Uh, Charlemagne's theologians to bring up the filioque as a uh, important Western doctrine that the East was deficient on. So that sort of originated so this originated so the, the filioque controversy did not originate with some Eastern Orthodox fathers discovering what was going on in Spain or picking up Augustine and saying now ah, there's some problem here. It was with the, the uh, theologians of Charlemagne wanting to be able to say, look, you, uh, you Greeks are, are heretics, and this is why. So, uh, at the time, there was uh, a, several councils held in the West. The Council of Frankfurt and Friuli. The Council of Frankfurt endorsed the Caroline books, and then it, as a result, the Council of Friuli was kind of commissioned to look into the question, uh, actually of, of uh, Spanish adoptionism, but in but in reality of the filioque, and ended up kind of endorsing the filioque in, in 797, and these were uh, it was led by a bishop appointed by Charlemagne uh, in Frankfurt 795. So in the period. Actually, so the Seventh Ecumenical Council and the desire of, of Charlemagne to show it as being deficient leads to the West uh, codifying the filioque doctrine as the phrase, anyway, as as being necessary necessary to orthodoxy. So these, so the West has these these councils which become. Uh, kind of the turning point, really. In, in a way, they are they are the, the beginning of the Roman, the modern Roman Catholic Church, because they are the first time. I mean, so Toledo had made, I uh, mean, you know, Augustine doctrines around. Toledo had introduced this thing into the creed, but now the West, in the West, we have the, the Charlemagne's Church, the German Frankish Church, officially. Proclaiming that this is the correct doctrine and that those who, the Greeks who don't accept it are heretical for doing it. You know. What yes. is
2: the Pope's role in this council
0: at Frankfurt? Well, he didn't really have one other than that he was forced to ratify it.
2: Did he have representatives at it? Maybe?
0: Probably. He probably had, probably had somebody there, but I actually don't know specifically. He wasn't, definitely wasn't pushing it because he was also, uh, he was ratifying the Seventh Ecumenical Council, right. so he was also simultaneously uh, ratifying a council which condemned the Seventh Ecumenical Council because he had been put into this ambiguous position politically of having the, you know, the iconoclast emperors had caused Italy to rebel and go over to the Lombards, and he had now made the Franks his protectors, so even though he, as part of the Orthodox Church, he wanted to support the Seventh Ecumenical Council because he, you know, Iconoclasm would have been, had been the reason why Italy had rebelled. Uh, the, on the other side, he's dependent on the Franks, So he's got to uh, go along with the Council of Frankfurt at the same time as he's going along with the Seventh Ecumenical Council, even though Council of Frankfurt is essentially implicitly condemning the Seventh Ecumenical Council. So it's, it's he's, so it's this ambiguity that arises from the political situation. But, well, but it doesn't, so we don't actually have a schism in the church, but in a sense, it's the beginnings of a uh, schismatic and heretical church are forming in Germany at this time.
2: Does yeah. the East ever find out about this Council of Frankfurt and do they have a reaction
0: to it? Um well, yes, you will see what happens. If there is a, a small one, actually, and I'll explain why that is, but there is a a distant reaction, and that is that one of the things is that the since Charlemagne's court was kind of driving this desire to codify theology that would discredit the Greeks, uh, after the Council of Friuli, uh, Alcuin, who's at the court of Charlemagne, immediately gets the uh, makes an adjustment to the service where because up to this time they hadn't had the creed in their liturgy in the West. And it's it's introduced into the into the liturgy and it's the Filioque Creed. It's introduced into the court of Aachen. So the Filioque Court uh, Aachen, by the way, is uh, Charlemagne's capital in Germany, uh right near the border of uh Belgium and Holland there. But, so, the, the Filioque is kind of now deliberately put in to the, to the Frankish liturgy as a way of kind of getting the Greeks, although interestingly, uh, over in Paris, which is, you know, you'd think that would be, that all of the Franks, but, but Paris held out, didn't, they didn't adopt the Filioque for several hundred years after, really until the, until the full schism was about to take place. But the, but the court, but the emperor's own court, uh, use the, use the filioque way.
1: That explains a little bit because I was wondering, you know, if they've been saying the creed all this time this way and then somebody says, us insert this way. Like yes. No, it was actually. It was, it, it, it was, was, it it was the way.
0: idea of, of sticking it into the liturgy was, uh, brought up at Friuli as a way of, uh, promoting this <laughs> new creed that they had, the change that they had, uh, come up with.
1: People weren't really all that familiar with the creed per se.
0: No, they they apparently were not. Alcuin, you know, even sort of thanks. He was saying that they wish they had a copy of the creed, and they thank he thanks the Bishop Polinus of uh, the one who had the council of sending them, you know, finally a good copy of the creed that they can, you know, promulgate now throughout the Frankish Empire.
2: So, so what I understood was Rome had not yet added the creed to their leaders.
0: No, they didn't for a long time. I mean, Rome, if Rome held out for hundreds of years. Uh, it was, it was. This was a, something going on up there. And that's
2: interesting because what you said is the Monophysites first, then the Orthodox in the, the East, then the Frankish West, and lastly Rome. Uh, yeah.
0: All oh, Rome. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, I think it was. It, yeah, it was adopted in the East. Specifically, in answer to Monophysite. So it was a. But for some reason, yeah, the Franks. I mean, the Roman Church was more conservative liturgically. Yeah. Um, now, this the word that how this guy got back to the uh, East was that Charlemagne, now being a very important person, uh, decided to sponsor some uh, a monastery in Bethlehem, and he he paid for to. For the upkeep of that monastery, and he sent some monks from uh, from uh, Germany to go and and uh, live there in Bethlehem. And in 806, the monks of Bethlehem were doing their services, and uh, somehow one of the uh, uh, Greek monks from Marsava Monastery, which is about three miles from Bethlehem, uh, noticed that they are that their creed was. That they were doing the service, you know, separately somehow in the creed, that the creed was wrong. I don't know whether, uh, he knew Latin or, you know, somebody had translated it into Greek or something, but he made a big, uh, stink about that. His name was John. And then they, and then when they went up to, uh, uh Jerusalem for the Holy Week services, the people up there perhaps already warned that they were doing this, you know, also made a, a big, uh, fuss about the Latins using a different creed and and were actually the so the Greek monks in, in Holy Land were saying well you're heretics you know you can't you know this isn't right so the monks wrote back to the Pope and said well we're just using exactly you know what was used by the king in his court in Aachen and uh, you know what should we do the Pope strangely doesn't he, he there's a letter called his uh Letter to the Eastern Churches in which he defends the Filioque, but at the same time he uh, speaks with the envoys of, of Charlemagne and tries to forbid them from using the Filioque in the liturgy in, the, in Aachen. So this is the, the Pope at the time is Leo the so he let's say endorses the, the Augustinian theology. So we could say filioque theology, but but rejects the creed. creed. And and to make his point, he's the one who puts up the uh, the shields in Rome on the doors uh, by the doors of the church with the creed in Latin and Greek, you know, minus filioque. So that the the Pope at this time is so holding out for. you know the actual creed, the original creed, and not not endorsing what's going on up in Aachen. But he's already, uh, you know, through the uh, spread of Augustinian theology, he doesn't see any problem theologically there. Now, strangely enough, it, it kind of ends there in in the uh, the whole incident. The East does not really go uh, charging back after to see what's you know what the West does about this problem. Um, and in the east, excuse me, in the west, uh, there is uh, the only result is that uh, Charlemagne has his court theologian uh, Theodulf uh, write a book about the Trinity, Theodulf of Orleans, in which he defends uh, the filioque on the basis of the unity of God requires, you know, that the if the Holy Spirit's got to proceed from the Father, he's got to proceed from the Son, too, because God is one. And he quotes a lot of Augustine and and the uh, Council of Worms, I think. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Council of Aachen in 809. So, Charlemagne holds a church council in his capital, which endorses Theodulf's book and uh, defending the Filioque. So, uh, it's a local council, but but the result is that uh, not only... This is, uh, you know, the Frankish Church convinced that, of course, this is Orthodox, but they don't even, they never take it out of the Creed. Even though the Pope tells them don't put it in the Creed, the Franks just keep on going, having the filioque in, in the Creed. But the, the, the uh, Orthodox Church does not respond to the Council of Aachen, probably because it didn't hear about it. Second, because in 815, uh, The iconoclasm returns into the into the Byzantine Empire, and so from 815 to uh, 843, we have a second iconoclast uh, interlude with uh, persecutions. So the Orthodox patriarch Constantinople is thrown in prison. Uh, Theodore the Studite, kind of leading Orthodox theologian, is also thrown into prison. And there's so a whole generation there where there's not. You know, they're not really worrying about what's going on over in France, they're, you know, worried about trying to overcome iconoclasm in, in Constantinople. And the other thing that happens is that after Charlemagne, the, uh, extent and, and kind of reach of the Frankish Empire gradually diminishes. So what the Franks are doing has less impact on the rest of the world for a while, and, and it's all kind of, uh, Seems to be forgotten about for a little bit now. After the uh, class controversy ends, there's again Orthodox uh, patriarchs, and one of them. There's actually it's kind of not a little off the subject, but uh, there's a little bit of a division within the Byzantine Empire between the monastic party uh, led by Theodore Studite and the Let's say uh, imperial, uh, imperial patriarchs party, uh, such as Tarsius and, and Nicephorus and uh, Methodius, who were laymen appointed by the, the emperors and were generally uh, very conciliatory to you know like when the iconoclast em- bishops when they went back against iconoc uh, you know rejected iconoclasm. All the bishops who would go along with that, they could just keep their sees, even though they had previously supported iconoclasm. And they were the monastic party thought, well, everybody, anybody who supported iconoclasm needs to be deposed and you know never be a bishop again. So there's a kind of split, and, and uh, the story of the, t- the politics of the time of the patriarch Photius is somewhat poisoned by that split, because uh, the, there was a patriarch Ignatius who is a representative of the monastic party. And uh, Patriarch uh, is was an imperial uh, servant, a layman, who was a very scholarly person. And actually, uh, Patriarch Phoshis' library is uh, one of the great sources of, of uh, early Christian literature because he and his uh, people that were with him, they read through all these Works of ancient literature and then made comments on it, and so the, the library, in some cases, is our only information about a lot of lost works, early Christian works, and I think also some secular that um, that no longer exist. But uh, what happens is, so you had Ignatius, he was deposed, Faustus is put in, Faustus gets deposed, Ignatius gets put back in he, when he's gone, and uh, Phocius comes back. So that's there's this. Tension <laughs> going on in the Byzantine world. Uh, the way that the, the Feliokwe question kind of comes up, and ultimately, you know, because we're, we're leading up to the Council of 870 where the gets condemned, okay, it wasn't condemned early there, I mean, the, the monks of Bethlehem monks were yelled at and told they were heretics, but that was kind of where it ended. Uh, they didn't, uh, you know, nobody had a big official church council about it. But at this time, the, uh, the Bulgars, who had uh, who had killed uh, uh, the Emperor Nicephorus back a, a few years, were becoming Christians. There was actually two major groups uh, becoming Christian at that time: it was Moravia and uh, the Bulgars. And this uh, partly. Because Charlemagne in the 790s had defeated the Avars who had controlled the area of the Balkans. They were kind of a Hunnish group that were pagan. Uh, So the Franks defeated the Avars and they started kind of expanding down towards the Balkans. And the Byzantine missionaries coming up, you know, somehow there was a, a missionizing going on from both directions. And Moravia and the Bulgaria both decided to become Christian. In both cases, uh, they appealed to the Byzantine Empire for missionaries. Uh, Moravia uh, had uh, Cyril and Methodius, who are famous for the creation of the Slavonic alphabet. And the uh, the interesting thing kind of the Byzantine idea of missions was that you, you translate the services and, and books into the language of the people you're missionizing, uh, the Frankish idea of missions was that you make all the people in the place you're missionizing learn Latin, so that they can you know do the services in Latin. And that's uh, uh, you know I think with, at the Orthodox Church we don't always probably realize that now because it seems like we're you know when we're people coming from Greece or coming from Russia, you know they as they come as refugees, of course they brought Greek and Russian with them and you know, they don't seem like they're particularly uh, you know, progressive missionaries <laughs> when they get to this country, but that's because they're not coming as missionaries usually. They come as you know as refugees wanting to preserve the home country. But in the terms of a philosophy of missions, they did uh the Orthodox philosophy of missions is to translate. Well, that uh was okay. That was about eight sixty, and then in eight sixty four uh the Bulgars become become Orthodox, and they start learning. But the Bulgarians want to have their own patriarchy. They didn't really like being, because they lived right next to the Byzantine Empire, they didn't really like the idea of being right under the Byzantine patriarchate. So they,
1: and the Byzantines
0: didn't want to give them their own patriarchate. After all, they just became Christian. Uh, you know, so they said, no, you know, why don't you wait well, so the Bulgars wrote to Rome, and the Rome said, "Oh, great, okay, you, yeah, well, we'll do a deal with you." They didn't give them the patriarch either, but but they um, said, "Well, you really belong under us anyway." So they uh, so the Bulgars throw out the Byzantine missionaries and bring in Frankish missionaries. Now the Franks uh, come, and there's a, a number of things, but one of the the big one here is the they bring the filioque. So all of a sudden the, uh, the filioque is now being used in, uh, churches that are, you know, 60 miles away from Constantinople. So the, uh, and where the Byzantines have been, have been the people who set the churches up there and now, you know, all these churches are now adopting the filioque and they, uh, are quite, the Patriarch Photius is very shocked by this. There's a lot of other things, but that was the, the most important, uh, the patriarch, uh, you know, is shocked to have this, this strange change to the creed, and and writes letters and uh, assembles a council which condemns this in uh, 867, and and he and the emperor uh, writes a letter to the pope in which he. Uh, you know, tells the Pope that there's all kinds of terrible things happening and complaining about it and says, and one of the terrible things is that, you know, the these German people come down here, they're bringing uh, some kind of strange addition to our creed. So, Pope Nicholas, though, uh, strangely enough, although the, they weren't using the filioque, okay, he, uh, feels that the Emperor's letter is an attack on the rights of the Western Church and so he uh, sends an appeal up to the Franks to do something about this. And they uh, decide to get some theologians going, uh, the most important of which is Retramnus of Corby, who writes a kind of a complete defense of the filioque from the point of view of Augustinian theology. It's kind of his work is sort of the the great work uh, explaining the Augustinian position and why the filioque is really correct. There's another person called Aeneas of Paris who also writes, and his his, the vocal, his work, uh, his idea as well. Those Greeks, you know, they're always the, they're the sort of source of all heresies, and and now you know they're very presumptuous and they're even daring to criticize the Latin West, which you know with Rome has always been the center of orthodoxy, and so uh, you know these terrible people and, you know, isn't that awful that they're doing that. But retronimus actually is a theological uh defense. Essentially the same, I mean, he's just based on Augustine, that the that, uh, unity that the, the, the gods is primarily the, this one essence and that the one essence, you know, since everything's coming out of the essence, therefore uh, the, you know, if the, if the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, he has to also proceed from the Son. And and that, uh, you know, if you don't have the filioque, well then you're Introducing some kind of Arianism. This is backed up by the Council of Worms, and in the West, this sort of becomes a, again official doctrine. In uh, back in Constantinople, uh, while the Council in Constantinople had, you know, condemned the filioque, it even condemns Pope Nicholas, and everything is looking pretty good in Constantinople for Proteus until uh the Emperor's uh, bodyguard you know one of his associates decides to murder him, and that's uh, basil first uh, murders mm-hmm. the emperor Michael and basil uh, you know that's probably wouldn't make him very popular but he so he needs to do something to make himself popular and he knows that the monastic party, the followers of Ignatius are mad you know that Ignatius was deposed and Photius, this layman, was put in as patriarch. So he becomes the champion of the monastic party and says, "Well, you're right. You know, Photius shouldn't be patriarch. But take, he's deposed now. And uh, Ignatius, you know, this monastic patriarch, he's going to be patriarch again."
1: Okay, basil on
0: one is the emperor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. who's it? Who was it? He. He had been like a bodyguard or something, but he became. The emperor liked him very a lot, so he, used to, he just kind of became the emperor's companion. And then uh, Basil snuck in one night one night and packed him up, uh, I guess, and, uh, and became emperor. So, but so he, you know, so Ignatius becomes a patriarch, and he undoes, you know, he he uh, gets rid of this council condemning Rome, but. What Rome wants is control of Bulgaria, and Basil and Ignatius decide they don't really want that particularly, so they uh, they don't give in to that. Ultimately, Ignatius dies. Basil brings Photius back, I guess, to let him finish up his being patriarch. And at that point, in 879, Photius uh, again goes on the attack as far as the Filioque. But in the meantime, the uh, Pope has Pope Nicholas has died, and the new Pope John VIII is quite kind of more like Leo III in that he he doesn't really he knows that he doesn't believe in this change in the creed, and he's willing to condemn that. So the uh, Council in 879 that we start out with is agreed to not only by Photius but uh, Photius and the Pope. Pope John. I think it's the eighth. So, Council of 870 is the one where the Ignatius kind of gives in to the Pope and, and undoes Photius's previous condemnation of the Filioque. In 879, this is when Photius comes back and, with the, with the agreement of Pope John, condemns the Filioque addition. Unfortunately, they, uh you know maybe because of uh, he trying to reach a, a compromise or something, he didn't. He doesn't address the theology of the Filioque in here but at least they had agreed that you know they were not going to put that in the creed. Later in life uh Photius was again deposed because uh, the new when a new emperor comes along he wants to put his younger brother as patriarch so he gets rid of Photius again and Photius spends his time in exile writing a book called the Mystagogi on the Holy Spirit which is our uh, kind of our the best uh Kind of classic Orthodox statement against the filioque. Uh, oddly enough, in exile he didn't have access to any of his books or the uh, Latin books or anything, so he kind of wrote it from uh, memory. But it's still it's the kind of classic. So Photius's Mystagogi of the Holy Spirit. It's what he does is he's it's it's where he answers this this theology because apparently he saw that Tremis' work. And he argues that the the problem of having the filioque is that divide, that the the unity of the Trinity is is its source in the person of the Father, and that if you, the filioque sort of is dividing that, uh, whereas actually, I mean, really, the the thing is the Western theology, Augustinian theology, is based on the unity as being in the essence, and let's say Cappadocian or Eastern theology is based, and the unity is based in the Father's person. One of the things that Retramnus uh, brings up is that, you know, in the scriptures it talks about the the spirit of the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of the Son, or the Holy Spirit breathes on the apostles, or He gives the Holy Spirit. Well, to that to the West, that the Holy, this Christ sending the Holy Spirit means that He proceeds from the Son as well as from the Father. But in Photius, uh, He makes a distinction. Between the procession and
1: the sending,
0: and, the sending and right, which he calls the procession is to dealing with the uh, the existence of the, the Holy Spirit's existence comes from the Father, but in in its uh, what we call it, the economic in in uh, the economy of salvation, the Son sends the Holy Spirit, and this is considered in. Uh, Photius and Orthodox thought is two separate things. And so that's why we, we still, in, in our model of the, the Trinity, the Father is the unique source of the Trinity, but in the carrying out of the work of, of salvation, the Son and the Spirit work together. Uh, and, but that's not changing the you know how the Trinity uh, come, what, where the Trinity comes from. The this council does, does not, uh, did not change what was going on up in the Frankish kingdom. It just reaffirmed that in Rome, Rome was, was resisting the Filioque addition to the creed. It didn't even change, uh, the prominence of Augustine theology in Rome.
2: Uh,
1: this
0: council, it's Constantinople 879. It's a, it's a Codius' second council. Now, Part of several things. One is that during this time, the Frankish Empire becomes weaker. Uh, Byzantine influence in southern Italy becomes stronger, and you go for a period where essentially Rome is—I mean, is part of the Byzantine Church and doesn't doesn't adopt the filioque. Uh, the Franks have the filioque, but they keep it up—you know—up in northern in, in Germany. And, uh, the two worlds seem to go on quietly side by side for a while. But then the German Empire, uh, well, two things happen. The, uh, ins- you have the Norman invasion of southern Italy, South Italy, who, uh, take over the uh, Byzantine territories there, uh, 1040. And the second thing is that you have a revival of the German Empire, uh, under, uh, originally Otto, but this, uh, German Empire kind of reformulates and starts pushing south into Rome again in 962. Otto comes down to, uh, have himself crowned emperor
1: in Rome. Who's in, like, in charge of the
0: before? I mean, technically, Rome was part of the Byzantine Empire, but after Charlemagne it really was it had its own territories given it was the former Byzantine territories were now considered papal territories by uh, people in the west and then but the when the Byzant- as long as the Byzantines were nearby you know there was still they were all kind of connected but the but they but already they had this idea you know from after Charlemagne that this was now the Pope's territory not longer the Byzantine emperor's territory so the Pope Took on more of a secular role. But, uh, the kind of the resurgence of the, uh, German Empire meant that now there was a kind of conflict being introduced into Rome between the German and, uh, and Italian interests. So you could say that, you know, prior to this, uh, even, the, even when Italy was separate I mean essentially this was Byzantine Italy Rome you know Roman Italy that was you know had Lombards invading you know but it, but it was it was under Frankish protection but essentially it was still the old Roman province of Italy with the increasing influence of the Germans you have now a more active uh, German intervention into this former Byzantine province so you have a conflict, of German, let's say, of German and Byzantine uh, factions, and it's interesting. We don't know for sure, but uh, some people have suggested, um, based on some evidence, that that's possible. That some of the emperors, I mean, some of the popes in this uh, late 900s, that some of them may have used the filioque in their uh, their letters of, of consecration to the or to Constantinople, because we, you know, some of because a lot of uh, a lot of these popes were never commemorated in in the uh, East, and generally that's put down to poor communications. But it, uh, it's more likely, perhaps, that that in their their statements, not that they would have necessarily put it in the creed, but because their theology, you know, when you write your letter of uh, announcing your consecration, you give a little summary of your theology to show your orthodoxy. And of course, they're Augustinians, so they may have put the filioque in some of the there are letters, in which case would explain why those popes were not
2: ever recognized. When did that start? Yeah. start?
0: That would probably have been in the, you know, that seems to be in the late 900s. And then uh, in uh, 1046, when the emperor Henry III comes to Rome, and there's a conflict between the local candidates, Pope, and he decides, well, this is time to uh, end all this nonsense. And I have my chaplain here, and he's going to be the Pope. And that was Clement II. And uh, he uh, he was the Emperor from Germany, the German Emperor. He he sticks his chaplain in, and of course, the chaplain from Germany uses the filioque, has the filioque, and that's that was the beginning of the filioque in. And then that started something, because then once so Henry then appointed the next uh, few popes. uh, So, actually, and then there's a whole group of German, essentially German popes that come in. And this is where the Reformed papacy begins, which is another class. But two things. One is that the Filioque, the theology comes from Augustine. It ends up in the Spanish Creed. But it's Charlemagne's desire to distance himself from Byzantium is what gets him to endorse the Filioque as the official creed of the Frankish Empire in 800. So from 800 to 1046, the Filioque is the German imperial creed in Germany, but Rome remains Orthodox. In 1046, the Empire takes over Rome and German Empire, and so then, in a sense, this is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. In a sense, the Roman Catholic Church has its first beginning with Charlemagne, as a local church, but in the sense that the the combination of the German filioque practice with the papacy happens in 1046. So this is when, essentially, Roman Catholicism reaches Rome in there. And then the other aspect that leads to the schism, because the schism hadn't happened yet, is that the Germans develop a doctrine of, the, of a papal monarchy, of a that a universal rule of the church by the pope uh once they become popes of course they never listened to the pope when he when they weren't but now that now that they're the pope they're they're saying okay everybody needs to listen um, and that so the combination of the uh, filioque being brought into the creed and the and the idea that the pope is the ruler of the church and can impose whatever he wants is what cr- creates the schism with with the east and uh, we'll but uh, the next time, I would probably I'll work on the uh, development of that idea of the papacy and, and its effect on the relations with the Byzantine Church and how the medieval Church comes out of that. But but that's what the, this kind of combination of things. And if you think about, it, I mean, it's really everything uh, happens. You know, that's kind of a very it happens very fast. So. Uh, the schism of 1056, uh, of course, is uh, right after this, and then, uh, the Crusades, uh, the Norman conquest uh, in England, uh, they're all, all these kind of turning points in, uh, European history are all happening in connection with this, uh, essentially establishment of Roman Catholicism.
1: The ancient Eastern Patriarchates, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, at any time was the
0: filioque ever used? No, in the ancient t- times, no. There was apparently uh, uh, Pope Martin in the 600s did have, uh, not necessarily a creed, but uh, he had. I think he used something similar to the filioque in one of his statements, but this was uh, corrected at the time that that that, that was in, that that was an error. So the problem is that. Augustinian theology was out there. I mean there was the problem is that the book de Trinitate was was you know considered kind of the classic work on the Trinity in the West and it's and it's mistaken and it's it's many of its uh, in general it's it's not reflecting an orthodox view of the Trinity uh, in many respects and so support a theological support for the Filioque was there you know from the 400s. And just that didn't it didn't manifest itself until, you know, these uh well, it was actually the adoption of it into the creed that manifested it. And then when you know, whenever that creed would show up in the East, either by you know Frankish monks or or uh German missionaries in Bulgaria, you know, then everybody would be shocked and say, Well, how did that happen? And uh, so even even with with Photius, I mean, although he theologically uh, refutes the filioque and the doctrine behind it, when he gets to the council, you know what he's really after is getting it removed from the creed. Not not in uh making a doctrinal thing out of it in the in the council.
1: Yes. Uh, would you say then that uh, in those portions of the West, such as Rome itself, mm-hmm. uh, where they were still reciting the original creed for all those centuries mm-hmm. uh, that they might have actually agreed theologically with the earlier but they simply didn't uh, weren't willing to tamper with the text of the creed
0: absolutely that's that's exactly what Leo the third says, and um, I would say that's probably also true of Johnny e., although I'm not sure, but I would suspect that's true of him
2: yes well th- there this is a very yeah, I think you're bringing up a very interesting point, and that is how orthodox was the West between Augustine uh, yeah.
1: and and
2: you know the schism. Yeah. And did did the did the did the people in between Augustine and let's say the Franks did they, were they using the language of Augustine but not meaning the same thing as Augustine meant? In other words, were they giving it a kind of an orthodox interpretation? Perhaps. Sort of a yeah. Spin.
0: Well, and also, yeah, I guess the, it's also a question of just how far you can be mistaken without really leaving the church or being a heresy. I mean, in a way, uh, you know, there's lots of errors, the various errors that a lot of early church writers uh, write, but we don't, you know, we still consider them as saints. And I, I guess it's just, you know, and even with this filioque thing, I mean, the real break is the... Uh, is when it becomes backed up by the supremacy doctrine that tries to enforce the filioque on, on the on the east, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's sometimes, something that although you could say, I would say that the the first the answer, to your first question is that to a certain extent, uh, the deviation from orthodoxy begins in 400. You know that already you can see the origins of of, of certain errors, but uh that the that the the presence of errors by itself does not put these people outside the Orthodox Church. It's only when those errors become kind of formalized and insisted upon and kind of aggressively uh trying to put themselves onto the church that the church then has to say, you know, well no we can't have that and that's it's really the combination of, you know, insertion into the creed and then and then the uh kind of attack of the, of the papacy. Right. I just, um, to point out, there's a, the best book on this uh, subject is um, Photius and the Carolingians by uh, Richard Howe. It's originally published by Nordland uh, Press, of which he was the uh, principal. But uh, I don't I can, I, if, I'm not sure how, if it's even available now, but I think he has a certain reprint business in Germany or Liechtenstein. If it's, if you can, if you can find it, that's, it's a great book, but, uh, it's hard to find.
1: Where did you find it?
0: Well, I got it back in seminary when Nordlands was still in business. But, uh, there, that was some years ago. He's, he's went overseas, oh, back in, uh, in
1: the, yeah. Yes? the 90s. Yes? Book. On the and Trinity. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Let's, um, have a lot of errors. I mean,
0: well, its whole perspective—it's because it's very philosophically. It's a philosophical defense of the Trinity. Uh-huh. Um, so, in a sense, you know, not as exactly everything about it is going to be an error, but but in a sense, it, the whole it, 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 its whole approach is different and typical Orthodox approach to the Trinity. Yeah. Yes. In
2: fact, uh, uh, there's this issue of essence and energies that really gets treated very differently on the Trinity. Uh-huh. It's, the, it's the source of a lot of the errors that you know that, 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 lead, that, that lead the West into this essence-based. Okay. Yeah, because he he's he's trying to fight the Aryans with, with, with a, a, a very different argument than than the Cappadocians did. for right? instance. Mm-hmm. you know, where they say, the Arians said, you know, the Logos is visible. We, you know, he's seen in the Old Testament. Okay. That means that he's created in his essence. Okay. And because what he's saying is, God's essence cannot be, Arians God's essence can't be seen. Okay. The Logos is seen. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the Logos is created. He can't be of the divine essence. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the, uh, the uh, the Cappadocians basically say, well that's, you know, he is, they affirm both sides. They say he is divine, but he's also seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, but, but Augustine says, accepts that promise that says, you know, he's visible, mm-hmm. then, then it's created. And, and what he says is that, that those manifestations of, of the Logos in the Old Testament are not the Logos himself, but uh-huh. are created manifestations okay. of the Logos.
1: Oh, and so, so the created be, says, grace comes exactly, from Exactly,
2: created grace. And the whole idea that the, the essence of God himself cannot be seen in this world, and it's only, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe in the future or something like that, huh. in heaven. But that very idea, he says it over and over, he just repeats it, you know, a hundred times in, in, on the Trinity. It. Obviously, that he agreeing with the areas that, that the Logos was seen therefore so, but he still wants to argue that he's divine so he's got to argue that he's divine on other grounds other than the fact that he is seen and what the Orthodox do you know, before Augustine is to say you, you cannot mistake the uncreated when you see it so even though he's seen the idea of seeing a created thing and seeing an uncreated thing are in, unmistakably different and the Orthodox are saying that, that, you know, the deified spiritual father is basically saying, yes, we've seen, you know, in a sense what they're saying is we've seen, you know, an uncreated light. We know a created thing from an uncreated thing. It's unmistakable. The Logos is, was, was seen, but he's uncreated by the very experience of coming in contact with the uncreated is, is known. And so from their argument from experience that the second person of the Trinity is is divine because they they know unmistakably what the difference between seeing something created and uncreated. Augustine, for some reason, mm-hmm. argues that no one has ever seen the uncreated, mm-hmm. and therefore, what the logos was seen, he had to have been, you know, a created manifestation. And so, mm-hmm. that whole idea of essence based was was essence energy based mm-hmm. kind of theology comes right out of, out of that on the Trinity. Uh-huh. and it starts the whole ball rolling it, it's amazing yeah Huh.
1: That's Where was the one most thing in the Old Testament?
2: in the burning bush I mean th- this is the whole all argument right. of why in the first and second ecumenical councils yeah. as to how the, how the Orthodox army against the if uh-huh. Athanasius used it Basil and all these guys used it the, the, the idea that that they're arguing about who the Logos is. And, and they're saying everybody agrees that the second person was seen in the Old Testament. Okay. Between the Arians, the Nomians, and, and the Orthodox. The only question is, when he's seen, is he a created essence or an uncreated essence? And and the idea is that that uh, if, if he has the attributes of, of, the, of the uncreated, then he's uncreated. Mm-hmm. If he only has some or, or so, then he might be some kind of deified uh, person, you know, created being, mm-hmm. but, but if deified created, being could never have all of the energies of, 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 uh, of, 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 of God. Mm-hmm. And so they're basically arguing not from philosophical standpoint, but they're arguing from experience of the, of the Old Testament, uh, you know, people and the, the New Testament people. Mm-hmm. Call them, like that. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's in August. it's argued based
0: on his philosophical speculation, about the trade, including the Yeah, and that's that thing. I mean, it's it's sort of strange that uh, you know it becomes kind of such a influential book. I mean, it, that it all takes place in a kind of isolated. I mean, it's all coming out of, a, of an isolated approach uh, from philosophy, without. uh right. The without the interchange the with the, with the uh,
2: it's beginning of distinctively Western you know way of looking at uh, at, at Christianity.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Without, without interchange with what other people other Christians.
0: Well, in a sense that uh, two things, uh, Augustine was basically Latin and not not really having oh he knew he knew some Greek but he didn't he appear to yet. appear to have read much Greek. Uh, he really
1: yeah, okay. Well no, that could be and then uh it was really hard at school and was just really
0: And then he also kind of re uh, you know, in his early works he seems to reflect what we would call perhaps an Orthodox consensus of, of theology, but during his lifetime he um uh, he rejects most of what you know he apparently had been taught when becoming Christian and creates a new theology on uh on, on a variety of topics, not just the Trinity, uh Coming from, I think, I think a sort of philosophical, logical base of analysis as opposed to what was the common tradition. In
2: yeah. fact, Ambrose, yeah. I looked this up, and I got this mark, do you want this reference? He, Ambrose is a section in one of his works on the appearances of the Logos in the Old Testament. Huh. He talks about Daniel, you know, in the, you know the three angels the fourth one. He talks about the burning bush and all these other things. And he says exactly what I just said. Is that mm-hmm. you know that, that when the Logos was seen, it was absolutely clear that he was not. He said they could distinguish him. The, you know the, the uh, in, in the fir- fiery furnace, they could clearly see that the three angels were that the fourth one was different from the other three. He was like unto the made like unto the Son of God, mm-hmm. and and so he argues from the the, the ability of the Old Testament. Uh, believers, to distinguish when they come into contact with the uncreated logos. Mm-hmm. That he is distinctly different from any created thing. And Augustine's argument completely falls flat on that, because if, if that's the fourth one, is merely a created simulation uh-huh. of the logos, then how on earth would you be able to distinguish him from the other three? That's right. And Ambrose is saying that. He's yeah. supposedly, you know, the one who baptized Augustine.
0: Well, of course, he was only, you know, he was up in Milan, uh, teaching, he hears him preach, he converts to Christianity, and then he goes back to Africa. Right, right, right. So there's, right. and then, uh, but Ambrose was someone who, uh, had a very, I mean, almost, a lot of Ambrose's writings are heavily based on Greek, Greek writings. writings. And right. you can, so he's very much a part of the overall tradition, whereas, you know Augustine, obviously, you can see he's not even that much influenced by Ambrose, was, you know, even though he was there. Well, but,
2: I looked up in Ambrose. I wanted on all his epistles. I tried to see whether there's any reference to Augustine. You know, you can yeah. just do a word search on, on Milan. Yeah. There's zero references. There's no letter ever written from Ambrose to Augustine mm-hmm. or any of those things. So there was evidently after the contact, you know, that they yeah. had in Milan. There's no other contact. Yeah. In, Augustine read Am- some of Ambrose's works, but Ambrose never wrote anything for Augustine that I could find. Yeah. So there wasn't an interchange. Well, and also, Augustine's
0: changes, I mean, he came, so when he first became Christian, I mean, his outlook seems to have been kind of typical, but then transformed as he went on, and I, I, you know, I'm not sure when, I you know, forget the Ambrose's dates, but, uh, it could just, you know, be that, well, because of course never, he may not have been in contact at all after they, they moved away, but uh, but, he, but he kind of developed his theology as he went forward, and, and pretty much did it in, in isolation.
2: Yeah, so, so Ambrose is is following, you know, Athanasius and Basil and, and Gregory and Gregory and Nissa and all those guys in that idea of the distinction between the created and uncreated, being mm-hmm. you know, able to be experienced and seen. Mm-hmm and Augustine he uses a completely different argument. He almost turns it on his head mm-hmm. to argue against the same guys, you know, the, the Arians and, and Yonomi. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wants to defeat the same guys, you know, mm-hmm. and it, but he uses a philosophically based, I think mm-hmm. it's basically that he didn't want to contradict a fundamental uh, axiom of Platonism. Which is these ideas that there's these two different levels, you know, there's this idea of world, world of ideas, mm-hmm. and then,
1: and then the idea,
2: and okay. the shadowy of shadowy at things, and, and they never cross over. Okay. So somehow or another for the, for the uncreated to cross that line and appear to the created one, you know, us now, is like a, a total violation of the most fundamental privileges of Plato. Which seems to be guided honestly,
1: okay, yes, um, two questions first, are you uh, planning to give any more classes about the of prayer
0: no, I'll do the i probably my next one will be about the development of the papacy, which will talk about i mean talk about the implementation of that uh, so I'll probably try to pick up with a running start here, you know.
1: Okay. My second question is a big one, okay. and um, the, uh, you may or may not consider it within your purview, If not, okay. you know, tell me, but uh, the, uh, uh, it seems to me that the uh, history that you have presented on the filial is fairly straightforward. Uh-huh. Uh, the... Uh, It's not too difficult, I think, to establish what happened. Right. The, uh, the big question that I get from people outside the church is they say, okay, I'm willing to grant this history. Yeah. But why is this doctrine of filial play so important that it's worth dividing the church over? Okay. Mm-hmm. What is the real ramifications of this? Why, why other than the, um, the desire of the of, uh, respective emperors to keep their turf and so forth, yeah. other than that sort of thing, why is it important from a spiritual standpoint in the church? Mm-hmm. And um, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Okay, well, I think
0: there's, you know, the three levels of historically, perhaps. Retains to the three three reasons um, you know on the Augustinian level i mean I would say there is it's the spiritual difference is a different view of God primarily is God primarily an abstract essence impersonal essence, or is God primarily a person from whom there are two other persons and so I would say that you know the opposition to the Filioque is important as the preservation of the biblical uh conception of, of God as personal. That's perhaps, you know, uh, whether that's a cause for schism, I mean, it actually didn't cause a schism at, at that point level. The second level is that the Orthodox Church, you know, has a creed, that uh, Christ prescribes uh, the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father. And then, uh, you know, the Spanish, for whatever reason, the, but the Charlemagne, perhaps sort of for hostile reasons, you know, makes a change in the Church's Creed to advance, you know, something that, let's say, is at least questionable and perhaps has, you know, we would say, we would say that it's spiritually, uh, misleading, but they, you know, but so that this, uh, this change of, tr- unilateral change of tradition in the Orthodox tradition is a reason that the Church, you know, need to object and actually here, uh, held a church council, which, you know, even we, we know that the one pope agreed to this at the council, and then other popes, you know, that they expressed in other times an agreement with the Orthodox position that that's, that it's wrong for the West to do that. Uh, on the third level, it, you know, the, the actual schism between the churches came about because of the, uh, the papacy's, you know, attempt to enforce this change on the rest of the church and the church would not accept that and that's where you know, that's where the schism did not come about because uh, you know, somebody was reading you know, somebody Eastern monk was reading Augustine and said, Oh, well this is wrong, you know, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna break off from all you Western Christians. And so I mean if it if it just it makes it sound from their point of view, of course, it's just that we have, you know, we're particularly uh, sensitive, you know, an eccentric, you know, that we that we just don't like their theology, so we're picking up our crosses and going home and having our own church, you know. <laughs> but that's not what happened, you know. That's uh, it's really the opposite of what happened. I mean, if anything, the Orthodox Church, uh, you know, was tolerant and tried tried to stop these things from happening, but didn't actually uh, create the schism until. You know, that was kind of progressively, uh, the, these changes, uh, became sort of more and more, uh, pushed onto the Orthodox Church. And that's how we ended up with the schism. Not, not, it wasn't something we created, but something that, uh, was, was forced on us. But, uh, but we do, you know, I think we are, we can argue, you know, correctly that, uh, first off, that, you know that the, the bishop of Rome doesn't have the right to unilaterally change the orthodox doctrine and force other, you know, all of the orthodox churches to accept something like this. Second, that the church, uh, you know, has a right to preserve, the, you know, and it's responsible to preserve its own tradition in in the creed, and that uh, popes also agreed to this specifically, condemning the filioque. And third. That this doctrine of the, the doctrine is out of sync with the with the you know basic patristic consensus of uh, how the church looks at the Trinity, and that our we feel that uh, our view is more faithful to the teachings of Christ and the New Testament. That's, so I yeah I, I don't I think the problem is that Western people tend to look at us as being the nitpickers who created this you know we're creating the schism, but it's it's the other way around.
1: Right. Uh so it sounds like you're saying that this is primarily a matter of church order.
0: Well, it's all three. I mean, I think we were you know, it's right it was right for Photius to defend the doctrine. It's you know, it was right for us for the church councils to defend the creed, and it probably ultimately uh was right for the you know church authorities to uh not submit to being taken over, you know. But it's so church order is a large part of it, but but I would say if they're all connected, and uh, you know I guess the question is, you know, in going backwards, would we be able, you know willing to say, okay, well, if you don't just force us to use the filioque, you know, well that would be fine, you know, then we'd go back into communion with Rome, though. If you would just say, okay, we could keep using the creed without it, and you guys use it with the creed with it, you know, would that be okay? Well.
2: Uh, I don't think we would. That say, came up, right? Pardon? There are many other issues that, yeah, yeah, that they came, came up. It, but it was the very, you know, the very rationale that led to the filial phase that just kept going and, and adding doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, after doctrine differences. So if you didn't stop at the filial phase, where would you have stopped? You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the divine right papacy, the Anselm's, you know, uh, atonement. The atonement theory, Purgatory, you know, based on, you know, remember what they argued at, at, uh, at Florence was the purgatory was created fire. Oh, okay. And it's a real place. Uh huh. And the idea of uh, uh, of created grace. Yeah. As opposed to uncreated grace. I mean, you know, the whole thing just started going in a very different direction. Yeah. So if it wasn't at the Filioque, okay, would the Orthodox Church have been willing to accept all of those other positions? No.
0: You know, although it took all these steps to bring about the schism, in, in working in reverse, uh, I don't know that the Orthodox Church would, would have it as a goal just to be allowed to not have the filioque and then everybody else would have the filioque. But I'd say we, you know, we've already, in a church council, decided the filioque is a mistake. And so, we wouldn't want necessarily anybody, in, you know, we wouldn't want any churches we're in communion with to have the filioque. Second, we have our church fathers and church tradition. Saying that the doctrine is a mistake, and so naturally we would want to push that. But
2: <laughs> the adoption of the, the Creed was, was, the, was the West hoisting the Augustinian flag, you know, and, and saying we are now officially Augustinian. Yeah. To, to the whole church, even if they had been sort of officially Augustinian before that, mm-hmm. they, they were basically announcing to the whole church. Mm-hmm. they were saying basically the papacy and the West is now officially Augustinian. Now, are you with us or are you not with us
0: well, yeah, as of ten forty six that's what yeah, happened yeah exactly.
2: so really, the church at that point had to make a decision to say, are we going to adopt officially adopt Augustine as either you know the main father of the Christian church or one of the main fathers of the christian
1: church
0: right actually, and I mean I guess in a way charlemagne's church was doing that consciously yes. to separate themselves exactly. from and distinguish themselves from the from the Orthodox the Byzantine Church right. by saying, Okay, we're defining now the essentials of Christianity essentials as including this Augustinian doctrine up. and you don't have it, so that's what makes us kind of our empire, the Catholic Orthodox Empire and your empire is kind of suspicious over there.
1: Right. So yes. Well, yeah, that's God. Yeah, Mr. Goggi. Of the Holy Spirit by Podios. Yeah. Uh, basically in there, if I'm mm-hmm. remembering correctly, although well, I haven't read the thing itself, but from what I've heard of no, you know, it, it
0: is in English. Word, like, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, I just haven't yeah. read it. Um, but basically that there's like two basic errors theologically that can result from that. One being, I think what you've mentioned, that in Orthodox theology, because the essence is kind of preserved within the persons, mm-hmm. because it comes from Father and Son from the, or Holy Spirit from the Son coming from the Father, mm-hmm. so they have the same essence as the Father, mm-hmm. and thus they're, you, you know, one God. Uh, whereas in Augustine, on the Trinity, uh, he essentially, instead of defining them based on where they derive their essence, is more of a re- relational. Uh-huh. View of how to define the persons within this one essence. And so yes. the essence kind of becomes. Now actually, outward. yeah,
0: Odius doesn't really deal with that much because I don't think he realizes that that's where the Western view is coming from. He sees it as mainly that, uh, that it's dividing the unity of the Trinity because right now the Trinity comes, well, he sees it as that. Either you're dividing the unity of the Trinity or you're creating a hierarchy within the Trinity that the Father is the source of the Son, the Father and Son are the source of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit must be lower than the Son. Um, And that's so his objections are based on, let's say, the, uh, you know, pro forma, what would be the implications of this statement, not Whereas uh, for Augustinians that's not really where they're coming from. They're coming from this other direction from the from the essence, but uh, which isn't which isn't evident in the in the phrase itself. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about you know what what these words should you know should mean, yeah. and why they shouldn't be used.
1: Yeah, yeah So what, he said that, that, if, that if you use the filioque,
2: that means you're putting the Holy Spirit forward. Yes, right.
0: Because you're. Because the Father is only the source of the Son, then, and it's the Spirit. And the Spirit is in a lower position in relation to uh, the Son, because it has an additional source.
1: Another way that I've heard it said is that the uh, Father and the Son are sharing a quality which the Holy Spirit cannot share in, which is His own procession. That's uh-huh. kind of like, you know. He's not able to share in some of the department. some so it kind of destroys the unity of Trinity. He said no two can have the same
2: personal attributes; they either have them uniquely or all three have Okay,
1: right. Yeah. But no, you can never have two, and, and that was the and excluding one other. And yeah. Actually, who said that? Motions. Oh, okay.